Well, good morning, church. We're glad you're here. Uh, beautiful Sunday morning. For those of you watching online, thank you for joining us. of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken it will be said on that day behold this is our God we have waited for him that he might save us this is the Lord we have waited for him let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation let not your hearts be troubled believe in God believe also in me Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take to you myself, that where I am, you may be also. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. 
for his steadfast love endures forever. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I want to dwell in your presence and breathe in your fragrance and rest in your holiness. I want to sing for your pleasure and dance in your glory and be with you where you presence and breathe in your fragrance and rest in your holy name. I want to sing for your pleasure, Lord, dance in your glory, Lord, be with you where you are. I want you Jesus, and hear the 
return to you. find strength to face the day and in your presence all our fears are washed away they're washed away come on Hosanna Hosanna you are the God who saves us you're worthy of all our praise strength to face the day in your presence all our fears are washed away amen because when we see you we find strength to face the day in your presence in your presence all our fears are washed away they're washed away Hosanna, Hosanna, you are the God who saves us, worthy of all our praises, Hosanna, Hosanna, come have your way among us, we welcome you here, Lord Jesus. Amen. You know, we're focused this morning on the, the goodness and the greatness of God and that mind-blowing concept that He chose us before we chose Him. It's hard to get my head wrapped around that. Even as I go through my day and I perform my daily sin duties and I can't seem to shake that. Knowing all of that, he still chose me. And he chose you. And uh, that's partly what makes him a great God. So let's sing a great old hymn that speaks to the greatness of God. Rochelle, lead us out.
And forest glades I wander I hear the birds sing sweetly in the trees When I look down From a lofty mountain grandeur And hear the brook And feel the gentle breeze Then sings my soul, my Savior God how great thou art, how great thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, how great thou art, how great thou art. But when I think that God is Son, not sparing, sent Him to die. I scarce can take it in that on that cross, my burden badly bearing, He bled and died to take away my sin. Then sings my Savior God do how great thou art how great thou art then sings my soul my Savior God to thee how great thou art how great thou art when Christ Christ shall come, a shout of acclamation, and take me home. What joy shall fill my heart, then I shall bow in humble adoration, and there proclaim my God. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, do thee. How great thou art, how great thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee. How great thou art. our God. Sing with me how great is our God. And all will see how great, how great is our God. The splendor i 
Darkness tries to hide and trembles at his voice, trembles at his voice. How great is our God. Sing with me, how great is our God. And all will see how great, how great is our God. Beginning and the end, the God had three in one, Father, Spirit, Son, the Lion and the Lamb, the Lion and the Lamb. Come on, church. How great is our God. Sing with me. How great is our God. We'll see how great, how great is our God. He is name above all names. He is worthy of all praise. And my heart will sing how great. Church, you sing it out now. How great. How great. that ends Romans 8 where we're headed next week's message but let's prepare for that now what then shall we say to these things if God is for us who can be against us he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all how will he not also with him graciously give us all things who shall bring any charge against God's elect it is God who justifies who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or tribulation, sorry, I got lost, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, 
nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And you all said? Let's sing another song. Savior, he can move the mountains. My God is mighty to save. He is mighty to save forever. Author of salvation, he rose and conquered the grave. Jesus conquered the grave. Everyone needs compassion. Everyone needs compassion. Love that's never failing. Let mercy fall on me. Everyone needs forgiveness, the kindness of a savior, the hope of nations. Sing it out, Savior, he can move. My God is mighty to save, He is mighty to save forever. Author of salvation, He rose and conquered the grave. Jesus conquered the grave. So take me as you find me, Lord. As you find me, all my fears and failures, fill my life again. I give my life to follow everything I believe in. Now I surrender. I surrender. can move the mountains. My God is mighty to save. He is mighty to save forever. Author of salvation, He rose and conquered the grave. Jesus conquered the grave. Shine your light and let the whole world see. We're singing to the glory of the risen King. Jesus, shine your light and let the whole world sing. We're singing for the glory of the risen King. Sing it. Savior, He can move the mountains. My God is mighty to save. He is mighty Author of salvation, he rose and conquered the grave. Jesus conquered the grave. Savior, he can move the mountains. My God is mighty to save. He is mighty to save forever. 
rose and conquered the grave. Jesus conquered the grave. Oh God, we're so grateful that you conquered the grave. Before time began, you knew you were going to have to send your son. We're so grateful, Lord, for your unending, never-ending everlasting love we give you the glory this morning and the praise amen God bless you you may be seated good morning what great worship set thank you guys very much for that please yeah couple announcements that actually, um, one's a prayer request and two are praises for answer to prayer. We've been praying for Mira, who for 11 weeks has been in a, in a rehab, and she came home yesterday, I understand. So, um, then Christine Mitchell, who we talked, we prayed for a couple of weeks ago about a, a, a very extreme, invasive chemotherapy she has to have. Well, she talked to another doctor, and they said, no, 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 let's do radiation first, which is incredibly less evasive. So, so she's excited, so that's a prayer request. Um, Tim, I hate to put you on the spot. Can we pray for Val? So I just want to go, Tim's right back there. I just want to make sure I have permission, now that I've told the whole church. Um, Val, uh, Flynn, has some... Um, some heart issues that are very, very serious. If you've been watching the prayer chain, some heart issues, very, very serious. We need to pray for her. She has a tumor on her heart. And, and Tim, is there an update on that? To Stanford. Okay, so for, for people online or didn't hear in the room, Val has this tumor in her heart that's very rare and, and needs surgery. And evidently, it's no one local can do it. So someone is getting her into Stanford that has influence down there for her. So be praying for her all week long, for her heart to draw near to Jesus, for Tim's heart to be at peace, and for the doctors to, to um, do what they do well. And the last thing, a prayer request for you is, as you know, Deborah and Mario are, are transitioning out of their ministry in this town. Deborah is our children's minister. Mario is the director of All Young Life in Lake Tahoe. They're transitioning out. By the end of May, they'll move back to Texas. So, so as far as our church goes, tomorrow we put online an application and a job description for Deborah's job, the children's ministry job here. So be praying about that. If you know someone that wants to apply, tomorrow it will be on the website. And, and, and Deborah and Mario this week are gone for their 20th wedding anniversary. So if you see them when they get back, congratulate them. But God is working. He's, he's incredible. 
He, he loves you, he loves this church, and he wants this church to thrive for his glory. So let's thank him for all these things now. Lord, your hand has touched the people of this church. Lord, we've been praying to you and asking you for these things. We thank you that Mira is home. And just ask that you, I'm sure she's encouraged for being home and being with her dogs and just being what's familiar to her. Just bless her, Father, and, and, and raise us up to be able to help her as she recovers from home. We thank you also for the news on Christine that, that we pray, Lord, radiation solves whatever's left of that cancer. Kills it, and no chemo will be needed. We also pray for Val and Tim that you mightily work in their hearts and minds, first and foremost, to remind them who you are and who they are as your children, but also touch her body, Father. Raise her up to health. Miraculously, do it today. Um, we always ask that, Father, but we thank you also that you, the author of all science in medicine, have equipped many good doctors. So we pray for that process also, Father. And we pray for our church and our children's ministry that you would bring the right person along to lead this ministry and the right person along to re lead Young Life in Lake Tahoe. Thank you for Deborah and Mario and their heart for the people of this community. Bless them mightily. In Christ's name, we ask all these things and we thank you. Amen. The plan is next week, Deborah and Mario will come up and give a bit of a report on what's going on in their world. So um, I hope you're here next week. We are in Romans chapter 8 again for two more weeks. And I'm excited about this message today. If you remember last week, we talked about the beauty of predestination. And predestination is the idea that God preordained, pre-selected pre you to be conformed to the image of his son. And, and to be adopted as his child. And it's a beautiful doctrine. And I'd mentioned to you that many people struggle with it because it implies some level of lack of free will. And I, and I had mentioned last week that the real issue is not the doctrine of predestination. It is the concept of foreknowledge, as we're going to see today. So as I promised, we're going to deal with these whole issues of God foreknowing you and, and choosing you and predestining you. And I want you to remember the context of which we are reading here. We're reading in a passage from Romans chapter 5 through 8 that is about suffering and hard times and hope that God will deliver me from this? And has God got me covered in my salvation? And so that's the context of which we're going to talk about these theological terms today. So let me read to you Romans 8, 28 through 30, the context of our sermon. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Hold on to that word called. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. There's the word again. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So, Father, lead us in understanding this passage today. I want to read to you this thing. I'm going to be sticking to my notes a little more, more than normal. I don't like reading to you. You can sit at home and read a book. But today, I want to make sure I, I say exactly what I want to say, so I wrote a lot more notes out. I'll stick to my notes closer today. The context of chapter 8 presents a crescendo regarding the certainty we have in our salvation, even as we face the sufferings of this life, that might suggest an uncertainty. It might suggest, that is, these sufferings might suggest that God has not got our well-being in mind. 
our sufferings might suggest that God has left us. The truth is, God has secured our salvation, and no one or no thing can take it away from us. We just read the last paragraph of Romans 8, which affirmed that. The theological concepts presented in verses 29 and 30 must be kept in this context and not simply be used to argue one's particular theological perspective. See, we are very good at arguing theology and creating consternation, even division in the, division in the church. Theology is very important, don't get me wrong. I, I'm, I'm deeply committed to pursuing theological truth. But theological truths and scriptures are always in the context of a walk with one another and our walk with God. And theology should inform how we live. So when we remove it and just use it as a point to a doctrine to argue, then we've missed the point. I've used this many times, the coin illustration. And so once again, it took me a while to find this. I put it somewhere. I couldn't remember where I put it. We're going to talk today, the coin illustration represents our salvation from God's perspective, the head side of the coin, and our salvation, our salvation from our perspective, the tail side of the coin. This section of Romans deals heavily with God's side of the coin, what he has done to save us. We have a chain of events here. It's called the golden chain. Whom he foreknew, he predestined. Whom he predestined, he called. Whom he called, he justified. Whom he justified, he glorified. These are five words that describe the order of our salvation, the chain of events that took place to save us. Many more things we could put in there, but Paul chose these five for our context. It is presented as from God's perspective. It's his side of the coin. He is the actor. He is the doer. He is the accomplisher. And we are the recipients. So we're talking today about what God did to save you, not what you did to get saved. And let's let God be God as we look at this. You see, Romans 5 through 8 is primarily about what God has done to accomplish our salvation. Romans 9 will continue in this vein with vivid, even disturbing examples of God elect, God's election. When I say disturbing, I mean it, it tends to violate our concept of free will. And we'll deal with that after Easter. Then Romans 10 presents the tail side of the coin. In Romans 10, it presents what you have to do to get saved. It presents what you have to do as a Christian, that people cannot believe the gospel if they don't hear the gospel. People can't hear the gospel if you don't speak the gospel. And so Paul switches from what God has done on the head side to what we must do on the tail side for this to be a full package. But today we're dealing with God's side of the coin. So let me say it again, just so we have the context. Romans 8 and 9 teaches us that God's actions are essential to us getting saved. If he didn't act, then we wouldn't be able to receive salvation. Romans 10 teaches that if we as believers don't go and preach, then people can't get saved. It also teaches that personal responsibility of the non-Christian, the seeker, he must believe. They are responsible to respond to the gospel presentation. So are you with me on this? Yeah. All right, so point one. We have hope for a certain salvation based on God's sovereign love. I spent a while on that title. It seems cumbersome. But the words hope, certain salvation, and God's sovereign love. 
I want, I want to, you to see for the rest of this message how those words are played out. And what I want to do is walk you through the context of Romans 5 through 8 to show you how this is played out, and then we're going to dive into verses 29 and 30. So let's go back to chapter 5, verse 3 through 5. Chapter 5, 3 through 5. Paul says this, not only that, not only that we rejoice in hope, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who he has given to us. So we see here hope and love. The hope in our suffering. When you're in the midst of suffering, will it ever end? We rejoice in that hope. because We rejoice in that suffering because in the end, after it produces a perseverance, perseverance produces character, character produces a hope because the Holy Spirit lives in me, I can have hope because the love of God's been poured out. He affirms the love of God in verse 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So he starts chapter 5 off with this idea of hope and love. Now go to the chapter 8, verse 23, where he brings us to a crescendo now. Hope and love start chapter 5. Hope and love end chapter 8. We've dealt with this passage already. But 8.23, and not only the creation groans, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. And when is that going to take place? Second coming of Christ. That's when that happens. That's our hope, looking forward to the day Christ returns and our bodies are made like his. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So Romans 5 opens with hope. Romans 8 closes with hope. But let's read the last two verses of Romans 8 on love. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I, I, I did that survey because I want us to keep in context. Maybe I've overdone it. But I want us to keep in context the theological terms we're now going to look at. That these theological terms aren't simply abstract things to argue about. These theological terms demonstrate to us God's plan to fulfill the hope he's given us, powered by his sovereign love. It makes our salvation certain. Who God is and what he has done guarantees we will be saved. And it's all his work. That's the emphasis of this passage. So let's dive right in. God's sovereign plan to save us. I'm going to reread verses 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be firstborn among many brothers. We dealt with that last week. And those whom he, for, those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Five words. Foreknew, predestined, called, justified, glorified. All past tense. 
I suggest to you the first four have already taken place. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. That's done. But he puts the word glorified in past tense also. Why? We'll talk about that at the end of the message. We're going to look at these somewhat one at a time. We're actually going to couple the first two, whom he foreknew, he also predestined. We're going to bring those two together. If you remember last week, I said people don't like the doctrine of predestination because it implies I don't have a choice. God chose it all. I have no choice. And, and that's, that's a caricature. It's a misunderstanding. Um, but, but we want to have, we want to preach God's side of the coin today. His role in saving us. But the issue is not with predestination. The issue is with foreknowledge. What did God foreknow? What does that mean? The word foreknowledge in Greek is the exact same as in English. It's two words. Knowledge before. Right? So the question is, did God foreknow you? Is that simply knowledge in advance? Meaning he looked forward in time. So he, he planned, I, I want to save these fools that ran away from me called humans. So he looked forward in time. And if I present Jesus to them, will they believe in me? Oh, I see. He will, he will, he will, he will, she will, she will, he will, she will. So then I'll predestine them. I see they'll choose me, so I'll choose them. So is it simply knowledge in advance? Or is it a term that means choice in advance? For God to foreknow you is more than simply information ahead of time. It is a choice ahead of time. It's a technical term from Scripture for God to know you is for God to have a relationship with you, for God to be in covenant to love with you. Those are our two choices. So what is at stake? Why the problem here? Here's what's at stake. Who is the initiator of our salvation? Is God the one who starts the process and finishes it? Or is he up there looking ahead saying, if I, if I throw this out on the table, I don't want to, I don't want to create a caricature. I can, you know my smart aleck nature. I, I seldom fall into it. So let's, let's back up because it's, it's a position many people hold. God, in order to honor your free will, simply looks ahead in time and sees if I offer the gospel, this person will accept it. So therefore I choose them. That makes you the initiator of your salvation. So did God initiate your salvation? Or do you initiate your salvation? That's the question. That's what's at stake here. And by the fact that I was going to caricaturize that view, you can tell which one I lean towards. I will argue that for God to foreknow you is to choose you in advance. Not simply to know information about you in advance. And that is based upon the meaning of the word know in this context and other contexts that speak of the same thing. So what I want to do is take a few minutes. It may be overkill, but I want to drive this home because what we have at stake here is how do you know in the midst of all the struggles of your life today that God will get you through it? Because God is the sovereign God who loves you and what he started in you, he will complete in you. Guaranteed. That's all through the New Testament. What God, be, the good work he began in you, he will complete. Philippians 1.6. And it's upon God to bring you to the end. As opposed to God waiting and asking, are you going to make it? And putting it on you. 
So I think this is very important. So the concept of God foreknowing you and predestining you, predestinating you. Ephesians chapter 1 addresses the exact same thing, changes the word a little, so I want to read this to you. Ephesians 1 is still about the concept of God predestinating you to be his children, which is what we have in Romans 8. You were, for, you, were, you were chosen to be a child of God, sons and daughters of God, to be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 1, 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. So who did the blessing? God did it. Even as he chose us, that's the word, the word chose, chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. So stop there. That's the same thing as God saying he predestined you to, to be conformed to the image of his son. So someday you'll be holy and blameless before him. You'll look like Jesus. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. And what is our response? Verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So the reason we praise God for his glorious grace is because he chose you before the foundation of the world. You didn't choose him, he chose you. For the foundation, and what did he choose you to be? Holy and blameless. And in love, he predestined you to look like Jesus, to be his child. So Ephesians 1 uses the word chose and predestined. Romans 8 uses the word foreknew and predestined to accomplish the exact same ends. So here we can see in Paul, to foreknow is to choose. Now, let's look at the death of Christ where the same words are used. And this is an important parallel how the words foreknow and predestined are used to refer to Jesus, especially if foreknow is just information ahead of time. If it's just information ahead of time, let's look how they're used in relationship to the death of Christ. Acts 2.22, this is Peter's sermon. The Pentecost has come. The Holy Spirit has fallen upon the disciples. They've gone out. Now Peter is preaching the gospel to several thousand people in the temple square. And you know what happens? 3,000 people get saved. It's a glorious day. But in the midst of this, here's part of his sermon. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders, signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, because they were witnesses. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan, that same root word is predestined, and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So, so go back to the concept is foreknowledge simply God knew something ahead of time and then reacted to it? Or is foreknowledge God chose an action ahead of time and then predestination is, and it is so? If foreknowledge is simply information ahead of time and God reacts, then what this is saying is God said in eternity past, if I send my son, what are they going to do to him? Oh. I can see ahead of, I know all things that will happen. If I send my son, I see they're going to kill him. That's not a bad idea. So I'll send my son and determine for him to save people. If that's true, who is the initial determiner of the death of Christ? Humans are. God foresaw what we would do. As opposed to foreknowledge is a, a choice of God. 
based upon his purposes, that he is sending his son to accomplish our salvation. So it makes no sense that our entire salvation based upon the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ is simply God responding to what he looked ahead and saw what we would do in time, as opposed to God is the determiner, God is the actor, God is the initiator of it all. I think Paul can, or not Paul, Luke is writing this, but two chapters later, after Peter and John have been arrested, released, and gone back to the church, this is their prayer. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod, who's Herod? He's the king of the Jews. Pontius Pilate, who's he? The governor, the Roman governor. Along with the Gentiles, which is all the soldiers, and the people of Israel. To do whatever your hand and your plan has predestined to take place. So who killed Jesus? The Jewish king, the Roman governor, the Gentile people, and the Jewish people. In other words, all of us. And why did we do it? Because it was whatever God's hand had planned and predestined to occur. He's the initiator of it all. Now, I, I hope in your mind right now, you're struggling with this. I really do. I hope you're struggling with God's role in accomplishing his purposes in history. And do you really, do you really have any role at all in your life, and your decisions, were they pre-planned by God, all of it? We're gonna, we see in Ephesians chapter 1, 11, it says that God determined all things after the counsel of his will. All things, I mean, we're talking all things? A lot of evil stuff happens. God determined all that? So we have to wrestle with this, the hard information of what is God's role in determining the course of history, and, and not just the big pictures, the big picture of it, but the details, because all big events are made up of hundreds and thousands of little decisions, and some of them incredibly evil. What is God's role in all this? We have to struggle with this. And, and it, by the way, it's an honoring to him for you to put your mind to it and struggle. He gave you a mind. He wants you to use it. So that, that was a sidebar. A couple more. I know I'm laboring the point. The idea of knowing. You go all the way into the Old Testament, and the concept of God knowing you is used throughout the Old Testament of knowing Israel. And it's interesting, when we look at a few of the contexts of that, we realize this is more than information. This is knowing Israel in a relationship, loving them. It's used in the context of a covenant love, not just information. I want you to see Genesis 18 to 19 on the screen up here. For I have chosen him, talking about Abraham. I have chosen him. But you see the parentheses? The Hebrew is the word no. It's the Hebrew yada. And it's just like our word no. It's a very common word. I have known him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised. So when it says I have known him, it doesn't make any sense. I have information about Abraham. That's why all the translations translate as I have chosen him. To know Abraham is to choose him. Your notes actually have more examples. I'm going to read one more to you. It's Amos chapter 3. 
Amos is about an 8th century prophet. Israel is in deep rebellion against God, and God is responding to that. Look at the way the ESV translates Amos 3.2. Talking to Israel, you only I have known, on the left, you only I have known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your sins. So God only has information about Israel? He doesn't know anything else about the rest of the countries of the world at this point? Or is the word yada, no, referring to chosen? Look at the NIV. You only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Because I chose you, I entered into a covenant relationship of love with you, and you turned your back on me. You turned around and you flipped me off. Excuse me for that, but that, that's what he's saying here. I did everything for you, and you turned your back on me. So you're going to suffer the consequences now. It's just not information I have about you. It's a choice I made, a loving covenantal choice of you. So don't rebel against this idea of God's sovereign love for you and that your whole salvation starts with him choosing you before the foundation of the world. It's not based upon something you did. It's based upon something he's done. It's not based on who you are, it's based on who he is. And this actually should cause us to glorify him greatly. Because now my salvation is not dependent upon me. Because listen carefully. If he chose me based upon my choice, if he looked ahead in time and said, oh, I see Tony will believe. And because I'm going to honor Tony's free will, I will then let him in. And if my free will is the highest thing of, of, of my relationship with God, then guess what I get to do? I get to say, adios, God, I don't want you anymore. And I'm checking out of this Christianity thing. That entirely violates Romans chapter 8. Because what is the point of Romans chapter 8? If God has foreknown you and predestined you and called you and, 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 and glorified, I mean, um, justified you and glorified you, then you, it's done. And what can separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus? If God is for you, who is against you? So you see, the your salvation is secured. So I, I started this by, what was my title? Uh-oh, where's my notes here? We have a hope for a certain salvation based on God's sovereign love. Folks, in the, your salvation is entirely dependent on what God has done for you. And I use strong language there, entirely dependent. We'll get to Romans 10 after Easter, where you must believe. But today, let's celebrate that we have a God who from the beginning to the end, my salvation is his work. That's an act of celebration. We're going to sing a song in a bit called the Revelation Song, my favorite song, to celebrate what he's done. But we have two more, three more words. That was just the first two words. And I have four minutes. You know what, that's not going to happen. So, he foreknew, he predestined, he called you. We saw earlier, so we said this, all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. That word there then, then caused him to say these five words, which called is the middle one. So what does it mean for God to call you? Theologians separate into two general, two calls. There's a general call that theologians talk about. That is the gospel goes out to the world. 
and the gospel goes out to the world, and hopefully the whole world will hear about Jesus eventually. And by the way, whose responsibility is it to tell the world about Jesus? It's ours. So we put the general call out. We tell the world about Jesus. I think this is referring to something more called the effectual call, where God actually comes and opens your heart to see the beauty of the Savior and the truth of the gospel. Illustration of this is in Acts chapter 16. Paul, Silas, Timothy, Luke all arrive in Philippi. And normally they would go to a synagogue, but there doesn't appear to be a synagogue in Philippi. So they go down to the river where Jewish people gather to pray. And they go down there to talk about Jesus. And they run into Lydia. And Lydia is a businesswoman. She makes purple fabrics and sells them. And this is what it says. Acts 16, 14. And one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, which is in Turkey, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. In other words, she's a Jewish woman who worships God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So you see, the gospel is presented. The general call goes out. But there's what's called the effectual call, where the Spirit of God comes upon Lydia and opens her heart to see the truth. Then she responds. We'll talk about that in Romans 10. So whom God foreknew, lovingly chose, he predestined and said, my goal for you, the end result of your world, your life will be to be conformed to the image of my son. Then in time, that happened before time, then in time, as Lydia's down at the river and wherever you were, I was in a friend's house at 4 o'clock Saturday morning when all of a sudden, after hours and hours of talking about Jesus, the light went on. The light went on. I realized Jesus is who they are saying he is. And I have to respond right now. That was God calling me at that moment. You all have your story. Some are, are dramatic and some are benign. But we all have our story of when we realize who Jesus was. That's God calling you, opening your eyes, opening your heart. Once that happens, it says he justified you. This is the 12th time justified, the word justified occurs in Romans. We've talked about it many times. Justified means God declares you righteous. Because Romans already established that we're sinners. And we can't save ourselves. We can't make ourselves righteous. It's de- it, it is established that in, is, um, with definitiveness. So God justifies you. He's the one who says, you are righteous based upon the character of Christ. I give it to you. And you're declared righteous. That's justified. Lastly, he glorified you. Why past tense? This is, this, you know, scholars write upon this all the time. In, in Greek, there's certain verbs. And, and, and the aorist verb is quite commonly used to refer to an action in the past. All five of these words are in the aorist tense, in the past tense. Well, we can certainly say God foreknowing me and predestining me is in the past. He called me in the past. For me, it was, it was in April 1979. He justified me in the past. I stand before him righteous now, and he's working that character in me. So ultimately, he's going to glorify me, but that hasn't happened yet. That happens at the resurrection. So why does he put it in the past tense here? Here's my suggestion and most people's suggestion. 
Paul is presenting your salvation from God's perspective as entirely accomplished. In God's economy, you stand before him complete in your salvation, done. It's, it's a done deal, and you can't change it, no one can change it. Thus, the next verse, which is next week's sermon. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? The answer is, it doesn't matter. It does not matter one whit if someone is against you. Because God is for you. And your salvation is accomplished fact in his eyes and in his plan. And that is occasion for rejoicing. This is an occasion, you guys, where theology is the rubber that meets the road in your life. So in the midst of all your pain, we're going to see this next week, in the midst of your pain and the hard things in your life, I just did a funeral yesterday of my friend who was married 40 years. His name is Mike. Her name is Kim. And she, and she died from brain cancer. And, um, and I did the funeral for him down in Carson City at his church. And he could stand up there and honor and glorify God and say, though I miss her deeply, though I wish she was here, I trust his plan. That he's working a plan that results in his glory and my, Mike, and my wife Kim's final salvation. It will happen. I can trust him in all the midst of this uncertainty and pain. And, and quoting Acts chapter 13 where Paul preaches and says that David, after David had served the purposes of God, he died and was buried with his fathers. And whatever's going on in your life, whatever the outcome, whether it's healing, whether it's restoration of family pain, whether it's your unemployment, you get a job, whatever the issue is that you say, boy, this is hard. Has God left me? Is God still for me? Here's the answer. He's for you from before the beginning of the world until Christ returns. He is for you. And he's working a plan. Now, sometimes you don't see it. Sometimes all you see is the pain and frustration and the sadness and the uncertainties. He's working a plan where in the end you will stand before him. And those who trust in Jesus, those who are in your family and your loved ones, trust in Jesus, you'll stand before him complete in Christ. And be Jesus, first, he's the firstborn. We will be like him. And as I quoted in the this, in this, in this funeral yesterday, which was primarily people in the audience my age and older, a s lyrics of a song by Phil Keggy. So if you don't know who Phil Keggy is, it just means you're young. That's all it means. But it was referring to the second coming of Christ and all that he's going to do on that day. And here's the line. Oh, what a day that will be. That's the hope, folks. Whatever's happening today, the hope is not an uncertain hope, but a certainty that has not been fulfilled. Your salvation is complete. We're going to sing the Revelation song now if the worship team wants to come up while I pray. And this song describes a king that is in control and has accomplished your salvation. So, Father, thank you for your word today. Thank you for...
the depth of your word that puts our mind to work. Help us to do just that, Lord, to think through this, wrestle with these ideas, struggle with them, talk to you about them, talk to each other about them. But in the end, Father, my prayer is that I and everyone in this room will come to a place where they say, thank you, God, for all you have done to save me. We love you. And all because of Jesus and everything we're going to sing now, we get to talk to you, Father. Thank you. In Christ's name. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Holy, holy is He. Sing a new song. Him who sits on heaven's mercy seat.
Jesus, your name is power. Serving the Lord. We'll see you next Sunday.